The first reading is Genesis 25, verses 27 to 34. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. The second reading is from Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 32 to 11, verse 2. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you had endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And the third reading is from Luke, chapter 14, verse 15 to 24. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent a servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just before we begin, an uh, announcement I missed before, which is that if you come in from the north side, I believe next week is going to be a little bit troubling, a little bit harder to get in. Um, the bridge is closed, I think, for World Pride. Uh, 
I'd love you still to come, and uh, we'd love you still to come. And uh, the way to do that is just to consider it a little bit beforehand. Um, come in via Gravesville Bridge. I presume the tunnel's open. You have to check that out. But I'm told that probably the best thing to do is not drive to North Sydney and catch a train from there. I think that'll be a bit more difficult, I think is the, the idea. So just to let you know. A couple of weeks ago, I began with a, I think I showed you a video of, um, maybe I didn't show it at 10.30. I told, I told you about it anyway. I, I illustrated it as a story about a Washington Post experiment where they put a brilliant violinist in a Washington DC subway station. No one stopped. Couldn't recognize greatness. In uh, Rico Tice's Christianity Explore, there's another experiment put on by, by a media outlet in London. It's just a 30 second video, but I want you to watch it. and it would be so easy to miss. Have you ever had the experience of walking down the main street of a city and being offered a leaflet? You ignore it or take it and then ignore it because you don't think it will do you any good. Well, there was an experiment conducted by a London newspaper. They got a man to stand just here outside Oxford Circus tube station, offering people a leaflet. On the leaflet was the free offer of five pounds. All you had to do was bring the leaflet back to the man and he would hand you the cash right there on the spot. Hordes of people passed him and in three hours only 11 people came back for the money. They thought they already knew what he was handing out, that it wouldn't do them any good. So they either didn't bother to take it, they didn't bother to read it, or if they did read it, they simply refused to believe it. Eleven people came back for the five dollars. Most people thought they most people thought that they knew what he was handing out. They didn't take it, they didn't read it, or if they did take it, they didn't think it would do them any good. Today we have a hope, an ultimate hope, the offer of an ultimate hope that is infinitely greater than anything you've ever heard, certainly greater than a five dollar note that you won't pick up. So why? Do people say no to it? Let me pray. Father, open the eyes of our hearts this morning as we tend to your word. May the power that raised Christ from the dead be at work in us now, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The human capacity to be onto an amazing thing and then destroy it all for something trivial or fleeting is enormous. That capacity is enormous. I could think of so many politicians or business people. It's not hard to come up with some public examples, although I won't here now and won't be hard for you to think of them in your mind. People who are on top of their game, but then go and trade it all in for some fleeting pleasure. Often it's sex. But not only sex, a flimsy relationship, a lie, a gift not declared, a high, gambling, drugs, praise, a few bucks, alcohol. To borrow from the Genesis story, it's like they sell their glorious moment for a bowl of soup, lentil stew. And whenever I see it, I'm like, why did you do that? Why did you trade in something so good for something you didn't need? But somehow, your heart did need it. Desire 
is a powerful thing. Don't get romantic on me. The human heart is potentially a reckless organ. Emily Dickinson, the heart wants what it wants or else it doesn't care. Woody Allen Allen famously used this line when justifying a relationship with his 17-year-old adopted daughter, adding, there's no logic to these things. By the way, in Googling that, I found a whole lot of memes with that quote on it as though it were a beautiful thing. People will swap Jesus Christ for anything and everything, but Jesus himself said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, the whole world, not just five bucks. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? Not just a sexual encounter. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? In other words, it's a bad trade. Followers of Jesus can be tempted by the bad trade too. And when they do, they trade in the ultimate hope, life now and beyond death for what you might call here and now hopes, if for only human hopes, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks about those whose God is their stomach, right? Hunger, desire. The writer of Hebrews talks about giving away your confidence, trading it in. And those who shrink back, they live for the here and now, and they scuttle their confidence in God. But it's a bad trade. Why do we do it? What drives us to swap the best for the good or the best for the worst? And is this something you are doing right now? There are many reasons we do it, of course, and I think the human heart is a complex thing. Perhaps you're thinking of some reasons why you might give up or trade in Christ for something else. Maybe you're tempted even as I speak. I'd like to hear from you. Pastorally, I'd like to hear from you because you're going to listen to this talk and go, none of them are mine. I'd like to hear. Today I wish to outline four reasons people choose not to believe the hope outlined in Scripture from four texts of Scripture and why they throw it away. This year, as you know, as most of you know, we have a theme. The theme is transforming hope and the staff of a prayer in 2023 that our church or community will press into this hope. It's not about sermons. It's about you that you'll press into the hope you have in Jesus and his resurrection and to do this in a way that lifts our spirits, gives us great endurance even beyond suffering, awakens our faith, makes us bold, maybe even in evangelism, causes us to serve, embeds us in community and sees our lives transformed. Now, what's not to love about that list? Amen? A guy came to me in my first year at Churchill, not church, not believing, and afterwards he, you know, listened to the songs and the prayers and the message. He said, I don't get it. You have what you have, what everyone, everyone is looking for. Hope. I don't get, he said, why people don't flock to church. But as I said two weeks ago, flock they don't. Flock they don't. And I can think of a few reasons, you know, past hurts gun shy, they don't believe it, requires something, uh, commitment, peer pressure, media coverage with the bad guys, doesn't seem relevant, 
You're bored, maybe you already are. You don't like it, church? Tried it before? The hope takes too long and there's suffering embedded into it. Now, bearing in mind the breadth of stumbling blocks that exist for us, here are four things from four texts of the Bible while we swap Jesus for other things. They are disordered loves, I'll come to that in a moment, misplaced priorities, one and two are related. Third, it's hard. And fourth, we actually don't want God. We want him, but we don't want him, not really. We'll come to that. So firstly, one reason why people swap Jesus out is disordered loves. I don't know if you've heard this before, but we need to know what to love a lot and what to love a little. I love my wife a lot. Uh, I love beer a little. But if I love beer a lot and love my wife a little, I'd destroy my life. So it's important to get this right. Ordered loves. Here's a, friend, a quote from my friend Andrew Cade. It goes like this. He's a rector of, of uh, Asheville. He says, when your lives are ordered according to the will of God, you'll, you'll love small things like your reputation a small amount. By the way, I can look at that quote and think, but some of us go, I, my reputation is the only thing I've got. You, you know, you make it a big, a big amount. But here you go. When your lives are ordered, you'll love small things like your reputation a small amount. You'll love medium things like your career a medium amount. And you'll love big things like your family a big amount. And you'll love Jesus most of all because he's God overall. And God has designed the human heart this way. It's called ordered loves. This is his order. It is disordered loves to love little things a lot and big things a little. You see it in the classic story of Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Why? Because he was hungry in the moment. Pretty simple, isn't it? He was hungry. Now, interestingly, he didn't have a resurrection hope. And by the way, if you don't have a resurrection hope, it's pretty easy to choose the here and now. Karl Marx knew this, by the way. He knew this. It's the reason why they had to stamp out religion. It wasn't just they didn't like religious people. You know, people are religious. They'll live for something bigger. But you want them to be angry about the czar. So you've got squash religion. Esau is hungry. Look, he says. Look, he says. I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? And so he traded his birthright for a bowl of soup, lentil stew. In the story, he's the older son, favored by his father, and therefore he's meant to inherit the lot, as the writer of Hebrews says, but God had other plans, even from birth. Follow with me, if you had your Bible open. Genesis 25, verse 29. Once Jacob was cooking some stew, he likes home. Esau was, it came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished, famished. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright, because he's a conniving fellow. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. So Esau swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. Boom, bottomed out. So Esau despised his birthright. He loved a little thing, lentil stew, a lot, 
his hunger, and the big thing, the birthright, a little. The hope we have in Jesus Christ is big, uh, like a birthright. It's from God. It's secured by Christ. It gives life and hope and peace and grace. We become heirs of the earth together with Christ. The hope is comprehensive. It's about the whole world, the universe, in fact, and it comes at his appearing with justice, yes, and mercy for the sinner. All of this connected to the promise to Abraham, and therefore has something to do with Esau's birthright. And yet people like Esau choose to love little things a lot. And of course, loving little things a lot is related to desire or hunger or thirst. The human heart is a tricky thing. But Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. Their God is not their stomach. If you think of these things only in the here and now, if you scramble for them, if you have to have them, if you try to control your environment to get them, if your God is your stomach, then you are in danger of stopping the hope, the eternal hope you have for a bowl of soup, lentil stew. So some application for this morning. Check your appetite. Check your appetites. The writer of Hebrews picks this up in a, in a bad trade when he says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral, sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Falling short of the grace of God is not what the media mean when they say someone was high in society and then they got demoted, well, often for some, some small fleeting pleasure. But, you know, he fell from grace. That's not what it means. What it means is choosing something other than the grace of God to live by. And it says, see to it that no bitter root grows up, this bitterness that goes deep in your heart that causes you to turn inward. And be careful of sex, right? Because sex and desire are, are enormously related. Sex, of course, sexual desire is like a fire. It can control. It's easy to have your heart curved inward on your desires. We need to love big things a lot, or bigly, and Jesus most of all. So misordered, disordered loves. And secondly related is misplaced priorities. I don't know what's happening with my screen. There we go, I'll try that. So will this now work? There you go, so now it's working, great. Is someone touching the screen up the back there or not? Just put your hand up if you're not touching it. Okay, I have controls from now on. Second one is misplaced priorities. Jesus tells a story about a man who puts on a banquet. I like to think of it as a great outdoor banquet uh, with long tables, like a big Mediterranean feast. And he tells the story, Jesus tells the story at a feast. He says a certain man was preparing a great banquet and he invited many guests. J.C. Ryle says that this is the gospel that you can accept or reject this morning. The great banquet is the kingdom of God. Jesus secured it. The Old Testament promised it. And there exists here this morning an invitation to you to accept it and its good news. 
No wonder someone at the feast said, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. This is the ultimate comprehensive sure hope that we have in Christ. You're blessed if you have it. But not everyone can pick it. Not everyone can see the beauty and power of the possibilities that Jesus brings. So when the banquet is prepared, verse 17, he sends out invites through servants, but they all alike began to make excuses. There it is. But they all alike began to make excuses. And by the way, some of you know this exact experience. You made excuses, you made excuses, you made excuses. And then sometime, maybe six months ago or six years ago, you stopped making excuses. But suddenly I read that and I'm in the story. Am I the person who, even this morning, is making excuses? And the crazy thing is, all the excuses seem good. I bought a field. I need to go and look at it, verse 18. I've got property that I need to tend to. How very Sydney. Please excuse me. I've just bought five yoke of oxen, verse 19. I need to test run them. My business doesn't run without them. You know, the store is only open today. How very Sydney. Please excuse me. Unless you think these are bad excuses, you know, there's a great one in verse 20. So another said, I just got married, so I can't come. How very Sydney. But embedded into this story are misplaced priorities. None of these are a good trade for the kingdom of God. Property, investments, marriage, all of them, not a patch on the hope promised in the kingdom of God. And so in the story, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame are invited. Those on the highways and the byways which explains the kind of people attracted to Jesus in the Gospels. They're not entitled. They're not good. They're not powerful. But they're hungry. They want the kingdom. Verse 24, I tell you that not one of those entitled, powerful, good people will get the taste, a taste of my banquet. It's easy to have your head down on things. Not just curved inward, that's the first one. But down on things rather than forward to what the writer of Hebrews calls a better country. Third, it's hard. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross. So it's hard. You know, people say, why would I choose something hard? People give up God because it's turned out to be hard. And they'll trade God in because people pressure you to give in. It's not easy to take a stand. They'll pressure you to take the here and now. They'll even use language like, be on the right side of history. Now, who doesn't want to be on the right side of history? Presented with a simple meal, Esau gives in. Presented with pressure to conform, millions will give in. That's what's happening in the book of Hebrews, which will begin next week, our Lent series, which began on Wednesday, but we added a talk in because of Rivendell last weekend. In chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, the writer points to their earlier courage. He writes to them and says, you know, you, you were faithful back then. He says, remember, excuse me, remember those earlier days after you received the light, 10 verse 32, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. He's going to appeal to them to keep going despite those difficult times. And then he lists what things happened in previous times when it was hard, he said, verse 33, chapter 10, verse 33, sometimes you are publicly exposed to insult, even without social media, and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated because of their faith in Christ. You suffered along with those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. 
because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. In other words, back then, it was hard. But then the punchline and the message for today. So, do not throw away your confidence, your hope. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised, what, what you're hoping for. For, quote Habakkuk, who also had a tough time, in just a little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. And the writer goes on in verse 38, my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back, but we, are, we do not belong to those who shrink back, right, who swap God out and are destroyed, but to those who have faith, those who trust and are saved. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commending, commended for. It's hard. It's hard for them. It's hard for the prophets, hard for the apostles, hard for Jesus, hard for the early Christians, hard for Christians for two, million, two millennia, and hard perhaps even for you today. Don't swap God out for it. Fourth and finally, this one's about sin. They actually don't want God. They say they do, but they don't. I think the human heart is a complex thing. There's a dynamic going on inside where you want the thing, but in the end you don't want it. You might have to look at me for a moment. You want the thing, but you don't want it. You want it, but you put a wall up. I know it's a paradox, but I think this paradox is lodged within the human heart, and I believe it's at the heart of dozens and dozens of stories in the Bible. And indeed, I think it's the story of human religion. You want God to be a part of your life because you can't imagine what life would be like if it was just Adam's and Bertrand Russell's depressing vision of life. You want God to be a part of your life, but you don't want all the demands. So you pray for rain on your crops, but don't yield to the will of your God. I believe this dynamic is behind all idol worship in the Bible. You want God, so you make one, but you don't really want God, so you make one. I'll say that again. You want God, so you make one. Carving it out of wood and stone. Look, there's a God. There's hope. There's rain on my crops. But you don't really want God. So you make one. You get to control it. You want God to come, but you don't want God to impose his will on yours. And so in our current culture, you tick a spiritual box. I'm spiritual, but without God. Johnny Cash said, they say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. You can see it in the prophet Jeremiah, where they trade God for a piece of wood. Prophet Jeremiah says, but my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. A, they've forgotten me, forsaken me, the spring of living water, and B, they've dug cisterns of their own, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They're looking for me, right, for water, but they don't really want me and all that comes with me. They want the hope, but without yielding. So they go looking for other water, 
in broken cisterns that cannot hold water, two sins, forsaking living water, living water and looking for water in a place that can't hold it. Tim Keller makes a similar line when he says this, everyone wants community until it gets in the way of their agenda. Everyone wants community until it gets in the way of their agenda, which means people are doing this to community and this at the same time. You can see it in the loss of people turning up to soccer clubs, let alone church. And I think, in many ways, the rise of individual sports, rock climbing, skiing. But you can see it in the church too. Everyone wants community until it gets in the way of their agenda, which, of course, is one of the reasons why people find it hard to make friends. There's many reasons why people find it hard to make friends, but I think this might be one of them. There's a dynamic going on in the heart of every human being of come close and stay away. Come close so I can have good things that I think I need, but stay away when you touch my autonomy. I think you can see the dynamic in marriage. You want it, marriage, and all the good that comes with it, but you're, not willing, you're willing to destroy it sometimes for something inside, something you need, fear, desire, autonomy. You can see it in the church. You want community, but find it hard to commit which is the very thing in the end that will bring community. We want God, but we choose self. We choose protection rather than surrender, pride rather than humility. And in the end, we swap God for a vague spirituality, which, by the way, Nick Cave, extraordinary musician, pointed this out in a recent interview. He said, I'm not interested in esoteric ideas of spirituality. I'm interested in the Bible and in the life of Christ. In the end, I think, I believe that spirituality is a bad trade for God. I believe that spirituality is a baptism of the self. And I'd love you to tell me it's not. But the greatest and only hope of all, an eternal hope, is available. It is the source of everything you want from Jesus Christ, divine love, a substantial and lasting hope, lasting joy, transforming grace, justice, and mercy, ultimately, at his appearing, a path to walk down in life and power to walk it by his Holy Spirit, all because Jesus Christ chose the path of yielding to his Father, he chose the narrow way and invites us on the same path. The writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Didn't make a bad trade. Scorning at shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. All of us this morning, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart and sell your hope for lentil stew. He did all this that you might say yes to the hope you have, and not trade it in for something fleeting. Let's pray. Father, help us first to yield to the message of hope through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and in and only in the power of your Holy Spirit, we yield. We say yes, and then can't believe how Extraordinary it is, the great banquet of grace and forgiveness and mercy and hope and peace. And you've invited us there, and we say here this morning, yes, and maybe some of us for the first time, we say yes. 
And then we ask you to keep us on the narrow path, to not trade it in for something so fleeting, some hunger we have that we want to justify or, or keep, even when we can see it dismantling the hope we have. Father, help us this morning to choose Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, in whose name we pray. Amen.